0: this week on the Back Table podcast. I just say start with something you feel comfortable with. Start with the shorter occlusions that probably can get a glide wire or guide wire through and balloon and stent appropriately. And if you find something that you come across that may be a little bit more challenging, it's okay to get a phone a friend. It's great to call one of your attendings. It's great to get one of your partner's opinions at any point, because once you go down that road of placing stents in a patient, you can't take it back. And it becomes much harder.
1: Welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. BD provides clinical education and training through the BD Peripheral Intervention Advanced Healthcare Providers courses. The BD Advanced team offers programs on advanced endovascular management of AV access, emerging techniques in the management of CLTI and venous disease, as well as many different resident programs and peer-to-peer opportunities. Contact your local BD representatives to learn more or visit the BD Advanced webpage. Now, back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Bahedi, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. My guest today is Dr. Minaj Kaja, clinical professor of radiology and cardiac surgery at University of Michigan. He's also the Associate Program Director of the IR Residency, and recently, he's been named the David Williams Research Professor, which is a, an amazing, amazing accomplishment. Uh, Dr. Kaja, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Polly. Thanks for having me. It's really an honor.
1: Dr. Kaja and I, we both trained at UVA. He was a couple of years older than me. He's been an incredible mentor and resource for me as well. And it's just been so amazing to watch your career flourish in academics.
0: Well, thank you. It's a lot of hard work. We all do it in different ways, and you have to focus in academia on not just patient care, which is obviously paramount, but also education and keeping up with innovation and research. So it's a lot to do, but you know, I've had great mentors and great mentees along the way, so it's really an honor.
1: Our topic today is alio-cable reconstruction, but before we get started, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about your path to your current job.
0: Thanks, Ali. It's a great uh, starting off point. I think Many of us who train at the University of Virginia, for example, really enjoy and love vascular interventions. And I think that's what it was for me. When I was looking for a job, I really wanted to do vascular interventions. I was looking for places that had that and University of Michigan had that in the arterial and aortic world, which is what I was really excited about. And then I came here and the venous interventions were really just, they were so challenging. They were so technical. There were so many uh, different types of patients that we had that couldn't help but get involved with it and then turns out that I ended up really loving that and focusing more on Venus and aortic work than arterial
1: amazing yeah you probably didn't think that that's where your career path would be headed when you first came out of training right
0: no not at all I thought I'd be doing legs but in a different way um, yeah here now I'm doing <laughs> a lot of legs in this way and it's really challenging but it's really really gets you going I think helping patients with a, a disease that I think we know a lot less about in Venus, in the venous world than we do the ar- arterial world, and sort of working with pioneers, like you mentioned, Dr. Williams, who who really essentially was my mentor for my second fellowship and continues to be my mentor today.
1: I love that you call it your second fellowship. Is it an actual ACGME fellowship that you did after <laughs> IR, or is it kind of just like your first year on the job was just so amazing?
0: Yeah, I, that's a great point. No, it's not an ACGME fellowship, although it, Probably could be, but I think really your first few years out, you're continuing to learn. We all think that once you finish your training, that you're done learning. But my first year, I essentially did a second fellowship. I spent so much time learning from reviewing cases and even double scrubbing cases, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them, and and actually the aortic space as well as the venous space. And I learned so much. And I also. Kind of figured out what my passions were from it, specifically some things we may talk about, like anticoagulation and different techniques for sharp recanalization, things that I really enjoy. And I think learning something from someone else new from where you trained is really opens your eyes to a whole nother love that you may have and passion.
1: Well said. Well said. Let's get into the meat of it. How do these patients usually present to you?
0: I would say that there's really a lot of different ways. And having worked at both UVA and Michigan, I think it's interesting to see that different practice patterns end up at different institutions sending you referrals. And so I think that we definitely get some patients from end-stage renal disease patients who have occ- chronic occlusions from dialysis catheters and fistulas and grafts. But then also, we have so many patients who present with acute DVT. And as we learn more and more about these patients with acute DBT, We know about 50% of them end up having chronic DVT. Mm. So I really think it depends on that. When we go to really the nuts and bolts of it, I think we have two different sets of patients that we get. I think it's the in-house patients. Those frequently come from vascular surgery, vascular medicine, hematology, uh, electrophysiology for some of the uh, SVC reconstructions the PE program, and even other IRs within our own group. Outside of our hospital and institution, it's actually slightly different. We get them from medicine, patients that we get referred that are being chronically followed by outside referrers and family medicine as well. And then, of course, other IRs and vascular surgeons.
1: Excellent. Do you have any self-referred patients that come to you for treatment of chronic DVT?
0: I think now more with IR being a more clinically oriented specialty, people have heard more about this. They've heard more about some of the recanalizations or reconstruction techniques that we use frequently. And then I'll find more and more patients in my clinic who've said, well, I looked you up on health grades, or I looked you up, um, I typed in Google, somebody who does these types of procedures. So we are seeing more of them. Many of them are second referrals, usually from word of mouth, but we do get those. And I think in the older age, we didn't really see those patients. They would have to be referred from somebody you knew or inside your system. But nowadays I think more and more patients are taking it into their own hands, which is great.
1: That's fantastic. At Michigan, you have a lot of residents and mid levels who do procedures for you, correct?
0: Yes. Our mid levels are involved with predominantly ports and pick lines. Sure. But our trainees are involved in every case that we do.
1: Do you teach them to look out for these patients when they're doing kind of their regular dialysis line workups and things like that?
0: Absolutely. I think given how strong our venous program is and all of our trainees really look out for them. But when we have specific types of patients that usually have been blown off in the past, maybe, or people have said, well, there's not really anything that can be done, we make sure during our didactic lectures or during even case teaching while we're doing a procedure, say, hey, you know, this is a patient that maybe we would have forgotten about years ago and we should really be considering them. Um, I think having trials as well really gets us the ability to talk to uh, trainees and other referring uh, providers as well.
1: Absolutely. And every time I talk to you about an iliocable reconstruction, I feel like I just want to remind you that this can be referred to CTRAC. I think it's a good reminder for everybody working out in private practice, too, that those exist.
0: Absolutely. And there are so many trials that are ongoing right now in the venous space, the acute and chronic. I think it would be a shame not to consider patients so we can further knowledge and figure out what the best uh, interventions or non-interventions are.
1: So let's just talk a little bit about patient workup. Talk to me about your clinical workup for a patient for a benign venous recan.
0: So we kind of focus that to the lower extremities or to the iliocable veins. I, I think many patients come in with leg pain or leg swelling. I think the biggest thing in a patient evaluation is being willing to see any patient, patient that may or may not have the disease process you're actually thinking of. So, and I just say that for all the future interventional radiologists out there, that you don't need a diagnosis coming into your clinic. Ideally, you would actually work that up. But to get to your specific question, I think really having a patient present to our clinic usually, usually have a lot of imaging that's been done elsewhere or they come in with swelling pain. And generally, I start with an ultrasound of their lower extremities and sometimes even an ultrasound of their IVC.
1: Now, do you do a, uh, just a DVT ultrasound or do you do a venous insufficiency ultrasound?
0: I generally start with a DVT ultrasound. And the reason for that is that many of the patients that are referred in my clinic are generally within the deep venous obstruction category. If I see them in clinic and I determine that it's probably not a deep venous problem and a superficial, then I generally would go to the next step of getting a superficial hot uh, reflux study.
1: Perfect. Okay. Oh, wait, I didn't mean to cut you off. So go ahead, you get your ultrasound and then uh, what else do you get?
0: I get my ultrasound and I actually, well, really just see them in clinic if they don't have any other imaging. If a patient's being referred by another physician, they frequently have had a CT scan. It may or may not be a venous-timed CT scan. It might be an arterial scan, which frequently happens um, when a surgeon may be seeing them for PAD and they get referred to us. And I'll take a look at those pictures. And I always request all outside imaging because anything can be helpful. You know, sometimes patients have a spine issue and they have an MR of their lumbar spine, and they catch chronically occluded iliac veins on that. The next thing is really when when I see the patient. I think the really important thing is to get a thorough history of the patient and look at all of their risk factors for history of DVT, family history, what kind of anticoagulants they've been on, what kind of anticoagulants they may have failed. Is this their first DVT? How long ago was it? Was it provoked or unprovoked? And what sort of interventions or procedures have they had in their past? And Speaking specific to iliocaval disease, many patients didn't really know that they had one, but when they were a child, they may have had a heart catheterization because they had congenital heart disease or were in the ICU and had a line. So that's kind of where I start. And the physical exam, I think, is really important. Looking at their legs, uh, looking at their belly, looking for collateral veins, swelling, discoloration, hair loss, and uh, going through what I my trainees know is one of my Obsessions is the Valalta score and VCSS, the Venous Clinical Severity Score. All right, these are yeah. both measures that are frequently used in patient evaluation for uh, deep venous disease.
1: Perfect. So you've got your clinic workup, and then you're ready to plan your procedure. Does anything specific in the history and physical lead you to go one way or another when you're doing when you're planning your iliocable
0: reconstruction? The first thing that I want to assess is their anticoagulation because i'm already thinking about what am i going to do after the procedure so is this a patient who has had recurrent dvts in the past and has failed multiple medications either a DOAC or warfarin or lovinox for example or oxyparin have they had recurrent clot after being on these medications i also want to know the extent of the anatomy that's involved is it just the ivc is there an iliac vein lesion is it bilateral and I would harp again um, as one of my really big obsessions is inflow. And I really want to know what the inflow is going to be at the end of the case or even at the beginning. So looking at the common femoral veins, the profunda, the GSV, and the femoral veins down to the pop. I think that that really helps determine the complexity of the procedure, whether I'm going to use sharp recanalization, how long the procedure is going to be, and what are the chances for a good patient outcome in the long run.
1: That's a really great point, inflow. Inflow is like the number one most important thing to have these things, have an ileo-cable reconstruction succeed, right? Inflow and anticoagulation, right? Yep. So I want to talk about a couple specific scenarios I've encountered personally, and you probably have some insights on. What do you do when the extent of the occlusion is below the GSV confluence?
0: Yeah, that's a great question and one that comes up all the time. Uh, it's one that I faced just on Friday um, <laughs> on a patient who had an uh, occlusion and had bilateral femoral veins involved. And so, really, the part of the workup is to look at that chronic DBT ultrasound or the DBT ultrasound and is to evaluate the vessels that are coming in to your potential stents. And if it's above the inguinal ligament, usually you have enough flow. But if it's below, you have to see what is sort of doing the work. The profunda is usually. The vessel that is around has got flow in it. It's usually dilated and it's been doing more work, but same with the GSV. The GSV has been carrying extra blood flow through it because usually the femoral and popliteal segments may be occluded. So when you have to go below the inguinal ligament and go below Mm -hmm. the uh, takeoff or the uh, insertion of the GSV, I really want to know how the femoral vein just below that is and how the profunda is. Frequently, the GSV comes in higher, almost always, than the the femoral vein and profunda confluence. And so you have a little bit extra space there, but you also want to know, do I need to do something to beef up either one of those veins? So I really take a look at that.
1: That's good to know. So then do you hesitate to stent past that inflow? I mean, these are open cell stents, so theoretically you you still get GSV inflow or profunda inflow, even if you stent it down below them.
0: Yep, that's very true. I think that earlier in my practice, I hesitated. I saw others in my group, people with more experience do it. But at first, thinking from the arterial world, you don't want to cover any collaterals. But I think it is different in veins. Um, You want to just make sure that you have recruited enough blood flow into the stent. Otherwise, it's going to fail. And as you said quite eloquently earlier, anticoagulation and inflow are extremely important to keeping these veins open and getting patients good outcomes. And so in the event that I am in the middle of a procedure and I realize that there's not good inflow, I know that I have to do something to improve that. And so if that means stenting below the inguinal ligament, it just changes what type of stent I may use maybe, but it won't change the fact that I will do that. But I want to make sure that I've seen by venography or by ultrasound where the GSV comes off, where the profunda comes off, and whether I can improve and recruit flow from the femoral vein.
1: You mentioned below the inguinal ligament, you like to use different stents. I've heard lots of different folks have ideas about this. Feel free to get into specifics of what you like.
0: Sure. So, there have been lots of studies showing that patients have increased pain. We've all encountered it, I think, when you have a high radial force stent below the inguinal ligament. I think many of us focus on potential fractures of these stents, but I think that that's less commonly seen. At least that's what the data shows. But what I do worry about is the patients having pain and not getting a good flow in. And so, I found that there are are some stents that have a little bit less radial force or a little bit more comfortable. So without having any biases or disclosures uh, regarding these stents, I think that the Venovo and the Cook uh, of Vena actually are a little bit more forgiving below the inguinal ligament. And that's, that was not my practice even two or three years ago. But now that we've been using the other stents, like Wealth stents for decades, but also the Abre, I find that it's a great stent up higher, but a little bit lower past the inguinal ligament. Patients have that increased inner thigh and inguinal region pain. And again, we want to get the flow into the stent. So we gotta, we need to stent as low as we need to, to get good flow. And I think we want to minimize their discomfort afterwards.
1: That's really good insights. Yeah, I feel the other thing about the venous stent world is you kind of just have to work with what you have, right? With all of the recalls and products taken off the market, put back on the market, what you learned in training might not be what you have in real life, and just knowing the nuances between the different newer generation stents, I think, is is really really useful. You get to work at a place where you probably have access to every single stent you possibly want, don't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I've I've been blessed um, uh, in my current career, but also during my training, we had uh, you'll remember we had everything.
1: Sure. Um, yeah. So we
0: got to try out everything. Yeah. Um, and been involved in a lot of studies with everything too. So. It's really fun but but I as as you've said I've talked to you in the past and other friends and colleagues in different practices and you know we'll just discuss hey what do you do for this and they'll be like I've only got X stat Y thrown back to B device and Z balloon and so you have to kind of put it together um, and figure out what you feel most comfortable with
1: Well I've gotten a little bit off track here but I do want you to walk me through your basic setup for an ilio cable recan do you set these up the same every time
0: I have basically two flavors uh, or three. Yeah, One is a native iliocable reconstruction where there's good inflow.
1: Okay. Walk me through that one. Sure.
0: So a native iliocable reconstruction, I generally have the patient's prepped supine, whereas I know a lot of others prepped patients prone. And this is another thing that I feel pretty strongly about. We like to come at these occlusions from multiple different access points. And I think sometimes coming from the left side, the left groin and the right groin, is just not enough. So we like to also use IJ access. So in my practice, we prep them supine and we do a bilateral groin extended prep, meaning that we include the upper thigh and we also include medially so that the GSV can be accessed. And I really, you know, again, going back to the inflow, it's important to keep that open. And so I prefer not to stick the common femoral or the mid femoral vein because it's usually diseased. But if you have a patient that doesn't have any of that may stick the femoral veins if it's the common iliacs and IVC. So in general, I I prep them that way. It really depends if the patient can tolerate the sedation. But in our situation, we have anesthesia always available, and we either do them under propofol or total general um, anesthesia. That allows for us to do sharp recanalization a little safer. Um, Having these patients asleep and not having to put a, a transeptal needle or a TIPS needle through I think helps. So the next step is I get access from all th- sort of all the different points, and generally that's going to be IJ. I put down uh, an eight eight French sheath um, somewhere into the IVC, usually a 45 centimeter sheath. That's really because IVUS, which uh, intravascular ultrasound, the one that we use uh, is an eight French uh, sheath requirement. So we do that from the beginning. And then I get bilateral groin access again in the GSV. And then I do sort of like a run from all three points kind of in the beginning of the case to sort of demarcate what we have to deal with. Um, Once we do that, I I put in smaller sheets in the groin, something that will accommodate a hydrophilic type of catheter. I like reinforced types of catheters. I used to start off with a standard, you know, 5 French catheter, but I found over time that in these chronic occlusions, having a reinforced tip catheter makes your job a lot easier.
1: So is that kind of like a crossing catheter?
0: Yeah. The one that I use frequently is the Terumon Navacross um, just because uh, it's got a reinforced tip. It's hydrophilic. It's four French. I think that it glides kind of through the vessels fairly well. And I use it in a specific way that once I've gotten a wire across, usually a stiff glide wire or, or straight stiff or angle glide wire, rather than advancing the catheter, I kind of twist it because the tip of it actually allows you to kind of drill through the chronic occlusions. So that is my kind of go-to. I've used the Triforce set made by Cook in the past as well, and it's it's sort of a reinforced sheath with an inner catheter as well. So all of those, uh, I think, work really well.
1: Okay, so that's that's your basic setup. Cross from one side if you can, and then have your IJ access, and then connect the dots, right?
0: Connect the dots, as Brooke would say, absolutely. I, I think another important point is When you have these multiple access points in a chronic venous reconstruction, you perforate potentially with your wire. So careful technique is important, but sometimes it just happens. And when I'm trying for a occluded left common iliac vein for a little while and I'm just not really making progress, I can go to the right side and then start from there. And once you get across from one side, you can really kind of help yourself by ballooning and kind of opening up a channel sort of at the confluence and maybe even come from above. And so I find it really useful to attack these cases in that way.
1: Do you do them all as single operator cases or do you always, well, I guess you always have a a trainee that's scrubbing with you, right?
0: Yeah. We uh, almost always have a resident or what we call fellows as well still with us, Um, sometimes have a medical student as well. So we have multiple hands on deck. There is the occasional two operator two attending case, but those are generally the third flavor of uh, iliocaval recans, which are the redos where there's already... Thrombo in place; those are a little bit more challenging, and I usually set those up.
1: I totally want to. I totally want to get to those, but I want to finish about this because I'm like a hamster on cocaine, and I will lose track of what we're talking about. Absolutely. So let me, let me just finish with the benign ones. Can you walk me through your escalation technique for crossing an occlusion in a benign case?
0: Absolutely, escalation technique is important. So I generally start out with a. Uh, sheath, a Davacross type of catheter, and a glide wire and try to go through that way. I think it's important to make sure that you have good back support. So having a sheath right up to the point of occlusion is really important. And that's where I start is by getting a, a nice system in place. So stiff wire, having a hydrophilic catheter, and then a crossing type catheter, and then your sheath advanced as far as you can get it so that you don't, your catheter doesn't kick back the whole time. After that, if I'm unable to cross, I may try a different type of wire, again, angled versus a stiff wire, and try from a different angle. But if that doesn't work, then I consider sharp recanalization.
1: All right. What do you start with first for a sharp recanalization?
0: Yeah, so I generally use a transeptal needle. A transeptal needle has a nice angled curve on it. It looks kind of like a tips needle, but is a lot smaller. It's got a 21 There's different ones on the market, but the one we use is the BRK needle. It's got a 21 gauge stylet and a 19 gauge needle. Comes in varying lengths. They are kind of long, so again, it depends on where your occlusion is. The needle itself is 71 centimeters, but something like that, or a chiba. If you're coming from the common femoral, and get a 20 centimeter chiba, that might be able to get you across where you have to go. When I use those, I think it's really important that you have your sheath all the way up to the occlusion before you introduce the needle, so you don't want to go off-roading, as we like to call it. And so I want to get the sheath all the way up, have venograms from both sides of the occlusion, so I know exactly what I'm doing, lock the table, and then go to work. And I think what's really important with these occlusions is that you're using all the tools that you have. Rotational fluoroscopy to make sure you're going in the right trajectory, your venogram, intravascular ultrasound when you do cross, and making sure you're not hitting other important structures and this is something I did not learn during fellowship and learned during my second fellowship as an attending, was putting catheters in places that you don't want to hit. So there have been challenging cases, including the one on Friday where we put an arterial catheter in because we were cr- trying to cross uh, the May-Therner lesion. So we put a, a Cobra catheter into the iliac artery so we knew exactly where it was. Did a run pre and post-sharp recanalization. We used rotational feroscopy to make sure we weren't going too far anterior, whereas we would hit that vessel. We've done cases uh, where we've also put in, we've had a NUS in. Again, these are really complex cases, but you you can see the ureter, make sure you're not hitting that as well. So those are sort of my escalation techniques. If the occlusion is really tough, it sometimes can kink or bend or make the BRK sort of just a straight needle. And if you need an angulation, then I kind of move up to a stiffer cannula, something like a jugular a liver biopsy set that has an angled cannula in it, and in some cases end up using a tips needle or colopinto needle itself.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a hair-raising situation, right, when you have to get those the big guns out.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely not my go-to. Uh, I, I think that I go to sharp recanalization sooner than I used to because I was less experienced and quite frankly, just scared of doing something bad. But I do think that it's helpful to have all of those different devices and trying them. Of course, for trainees, working with different attendings who try different things is important. And even for myself, finding a sort of easier case, quote unquote, where I can use a different device and figure that out, I think is helpful.
1: Just to like be totally blunt about how to use these Sharp Recan devices, you poke and then how do you know if you're in the right spot?
0: Well, you're hoping that you're in the right spot. I think using the uh, rotational fluoroscopy it gives you a, a general sense of where you are, but I think it doesn't, it's not always perfect. And I, I think it's important to note that when you poke, you're poking in very, very small increments. Like we're talking two, three, four millimeters at a time until you feel like, like things are, are going well. I use an 018 wire through almost all of these devices, unless it's the colopinto needle, so that your hole isn't as big. And as soon as I get across something, I shove the wire up, hope that it goes towards the right atrium and not the retroperitoneum or something else. And then I actually confirm uh, almost 100% with intravascular ultrasound. And so I put in, the reason I use an 018 wire is there's an 018 intravascular ultrasound. There's also 014, but use that a little bit less because it's a little bit flimsier. And I I take it from the point where I know I'm in the vessel to the point that I think I'm out of the vessel and back into the cava or the right atrium. And I I do a pullback and I sort of see where I am and want to make sure I have traversed a safe area. Usually it's intravascularly, you just don't see the walls of the vein as well. But it's generally important to make sure and feel confident that you can proceed with the next steps. Of course, a venogram is involved as well.
1: Wow. So you would uh, rather use the 018 IVIS over an 018 wire before you inject contrast or upsize to an 035 just because it's safer. That's...
0: I think, yeah. And so I know that that might sound strange, but I think that injecting contrast, if I did go outside the vessel extravascularly or I Mm -hmm. went extravascular and intravascular, when I inject dye, it's going to muddy the view. And so if I inject contrast, I may see all kinds of extra but It's probably not a big deal because it's in the retroperitoneal space usually, but it makes it harder for me to see what I'm going to do um, on my next steps. And I feel very confident with intravascular ultrasound. You know where you are at point A and point C, and you just have to make sure that point B didn't go through something critical. So that's how I sort of use, how I use it to that benefit. And I keep it smaller. So an 0.18 hole or a uh, six French IVUS is smaller than an eight or nine French IVUS. Sure. And again, I, I want to keep my visualization as clean as possible.
1: Fantastic. So then, do you use that 018 IVIS when you're sizing stents later, or do you, you switch up to an 0 035?
0: I'm guilty of using an 035 to follow.
1: <laughs> That's what I um, thought. <laughs> um,
0: be, because you get a better field of view. Sure. And so uh, I have the liberty of working in academics <laughs> where sometimes cost is important. But uh, I think that if you're 100% confident that you went through, you have a very good pathway and you do inject dye then yes, you could save that 018 um, ibis. Again, I don't use that 018 ibis unless I have to do sharp recan. And I think that gotcha. that extra cost is worth the potential downside to the patient.
1: Is there a um, segment length that you're willing to sharp recan? Like, What I'm trying to say is, have you ever come to an occlusion and been like, that is too long of an occlusion? I do not want to sharp recan that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's a really important point and one about experience and just knowing uh, your own limits and what's safe and what's not safe. And as radiologists, we know what uh, what sort of structures are in the way. And so it depends on where you're doing the sharp recant. But I think around the most common location, which is around the cable confluence, around the sort of renal vein level where IVC filter may be in place or sort of the Matherner lesion, I, I think a 5-centimeter occlusion is sort of I feel very comfortable with. Anything above that, I want to make sure I'm doing some extra things. Those extra things are, again, putting a catheter in the arterial system to make sure I'm not hitting the renal artery if I'm doing something at that area or putting it into the iliacs or just putting it in the aorta just so I can make sure I know where those things are. Gotcha.
1: Cool. Anything else about kind of the flavor number one recans that you want to talk about?
0: I think stent sizing and ballooning is very, very important. So pre-dilating before you put a stent in is really important. All the manufacturers recommend dilating to about the same size of your stent. And then figuring out with intravascular ultrasound or IVAS, I think it should be the standard of care for these types of cases because you don't really know where your landing zones are. We gestalt with venography, but that's single plane usually. So I think that using intravascular ultrasound, appropriately sizing your stents and making sure that when you're placing the stents that you're placing them so you're that in normal vein on both ends. And that if you have compromised uh, a landing zone on one of the edges, that you probably are going to need to do something adjunctive, whether it's additional ballooning or extending the stent one way or another.
1: For sure. Do you get concerned about perforating with your balloon before? before placing your stent in place? And I guess the adjunct question is how often do you have to switch to a covered stent?
0: Yeah, that's those are always the toughest situations. I, and it doesn't happen very often, or at least that we know because of the low pressure venous system. But I do get concerned for jumping straight to a large size bullet. And so one point would be if I have done sharp reconstruction where the wire didn't just fly through an occlusion, I generally kind of go conservatively. I'll start with maybe an eight millimeter balloon in the IVC just through the track that you've created or the reconstruction recanalized area. And then I upsize to a 12 and then probably go to a 16. But I go slow and steady because I think if the the vein opens up as you balloon it, but if you jump straight to the bigger bigger size, I think that that is where I have more risks and you can't take it back. If I put in an eight millimeter balloon and inflate it. Like you said, it perforated through, I went extravascular something like that. I have an opportunity to maybe redirect while I'm still not fully anticoagulated, or if I am anticoagulated to come down on the heparin or argatroban, for example, and then fix it. So I do worry a little bit about that on every case. And that's why I kind of work my way up.
1: For sure. You brought up the Great point of anticoagulation again. I don't think we touched on how you like to anticoagulate during
0: these procedures. Yeah. So, whenever I start the case, I get a baseline ACT or activated clotting times to see where it is. And then I always do part as part of our timeout. um, I say we're going to take lots of ACTs and we're going to give lots of heparin, but we're not going to do it until we have confirmed that we've crossed the occluded areas safely. And confirmed it with either venography, rotational fluoroscopy, and in my case, generally uh, intravascular ultrasound. At that point, I give a large bolus of heparin and uh, I want their goal. My goal ACT is around 230 to 250 seconds during the ballooning and scenting. And in general, I administer heparin and then I check an ACT five minutes later. And if it's a, a good amount, then, uh, if the ACT is in a good good place, then I'll ask to check every 15 to 20 minutes. And if it's not in a good place, I'll give a smaller dose and then check again after five minutes until I'm sort of at a steady state in that 230 to 250 range. And then we'll check frequently throughout the procedure.
1: Do you have folks stop their anticoagulation
0: beforehand? That is a great question. One I hear frequently from trainees is whether to stop any anticoagulation. And if it's an occluded IVC, I like to stop it ahead of time for the appropriate amount. So most of the DOACs are 48 hours, in being five days. And Lovinox uh, is usually one one or two doses. And the reason for that is that I feel more, far more comfortable being aggressive with sharp reconstruction of that five centimeter area when they're not on anticoagulation. In general, it's not going to be an issue to stop it for a couple of days. They've got to filter it in place, essentially. And most of these patients have chronic occlusions.
1: That's a really good outline for somebody starting with iliocable reconstructions in flavor number one. But now let's get to the fun part what's flavor number two uh
0: flavor number two is a ileo cable reconstruction with port inflow and really that's very similar to flavor number one but it requires you assessing your inflow either at the beginning of the case or fighting for it at the end and that changes how you're going to do things um because flavor number one i prepped the ij and the groins But in flavor number two, I prep the ankle veins and the knee veins as well because I need to build up inflow. And in those cases, at this point, I prep the posterior tibial vein in almost everybody now uh, whenever I'm doing these types of cases. And I do an ascending venogram as the first step of the case. Because again, I think myself, the trainees, the nurses and techs, all of whom are wonderful at our place, really want to know, do we have a, is this going to add two hours to the end of the case or... Are we going to get lucky and 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 are we going to be able to fly through? And so I do ascending venograms by just injecting the posterior tibial vein with a micropuncture kit, and then I squeeze the calf to watch it go up the leg. And then I'll see if the popliteal vein is open, the femoral vein is open, if the profunda is the dominant inflow to the stent. And I carry it all the way up to the groin. So I can either inject a 20cc with a chaser of saline and kind of move the the II as we're kind of going up on each leg or do it in segments. If it's really bad disease, um, then I want to kind of look at at the knee first, the mid-thigh, and then right at the groin. And really, the rest of the case is kind of uh, the same. It's whether I'm going to do the inflow first because it's so bad, or if I'm going to do the inflow at the end. And my management of inflow is generally either extending the stent or doing venoplasty of the femoral popliteal veins. And I find that it's easier to do it at the end unless it's completely occluded up top. And if it's fully occluded at the common femoral into the external iliac, then I may actually do that first because I don't want heparin on board when I'm doing that. And if I do it at the end of the case, there's lots of heparin kind of going as the stents are already in and I want to pay, keep the patient anticoagulated. So it's really just that determination of am I going to fight for inflow in the beginning or fight for inflow at the end? In general, it, it may add, um, a couple of hours to the case uh, if it's really bad, but if I can't do that, then the stents are going to go down. So I shouldn't do the stenting.
1: That's such a good point.
0: So that's actually variant too, right? Right? Yeah. All of that covers uh, flavor two.
1: Flavor number two, man. That's a tough flavor, but I think that's a pretty common one we encounter in practice, and also a common reason why why you see the stents go down. Absolutely. So okay, I understand when you treat the inflow at the end of the case, you can use your IJ access you could, you know, use your other, your GSV access if you need to. But can you walk me through how you treat it from your posterior tibial vein access, like kind of like a step-by-step of what you like to do?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you hit the nail on the head with the IJ access. If you go from the internal jugular vein, you can go through your stents that you placed and recanalize from above and go all the way down so that you don't have any issues with access from your femoral veins because you can't treat below them. So I, I generally have a different access point. So that's one. But from the posterior tibial veins, you may think back to your training days of pedal access for arterial cases and doing sort of a safari type procedure uh, for patients with critical life-threatening ischemia, limb-threatening ischemia rather. So generally, I put in a micropuncture kit, do the ascending venogram, and then I take a nitrex type of wire, you know, a a long nitrex, and I advance that wire from the ankle all the way up uh, as far as I can get it. And then if I need to, I again use a Navicross catheter. And sometimes I do that uh, by taking the transitional dilator out and just advancing that. Or I put in a four French sheath or a radial sheath in the ankle. The reason I like to keep the ankle sheath small is that actually has the highest venous pressure in the body, if you think about it. Given that these patients have a history of occlusion, they actually bleed worse than the IJ or the groin axis in the end of these cases. And so I like to keep the sheath size small, work my way up, and then I generally tend to snare the wire from above and then do all the work from above afterwards. That's really tough. It's time consuming. I definitely believe that's the case. If I can get it all done from below with just a slightly larger sheath size, then I would absolutely do that. But that doesn't happen always.
1: I'm really excited for the next five to 10 years and just to see how we start treating fempop occlusion a little bit differently because... Honestly, that is like one of the most challenging things we do as interventional radiologists is manage those patients. You can do the most beautiful iliocable reconstruction in the world, and then it'll go down like a week later because they don't have inflow. So you and I can talk about inflow all day. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we have more important things to talk about, like flavor number three. Hit me with that.
0: Yeah. Flavor number three is something that we see far more these days, which is an occluded stent. A chronically occluded stent, they're generally patients that are were treated at an outside institution, although could be your own. And I've treated plenty of my patients that I've un- unfortunately allowed to go down for one of the reasons you mentioned before. And generally, I find those patients to be far more challenging. Their disease is more progressed. They have a much higher Volalta score. They're suffering a lot more. And they've been bounced around from physician to physician or practice to practice and really have a tough time with those. They generally, I think, go down for a host of reasons, with the top two probably being inflow and number two being anticoagulation.
1: I knew it. I knew you were yeah. going to say that. <laughs>
0: um, but number three is probably anatomy because, or functional, because they may have been, this, the actual lesion that we were, were intended to be treated was missed. Maybe the stent was a little bit too short on a May Thurner patient, and then it kind of slipped back and included or you stopped in the deep in the pelvis uh, where the internal sort of joins into the common and external, that area is usually more uh, posterior. And if you have a stent that ends around that area, it t-bones the vein and causes turbulence. So frequently you're kind of dealing with one of those problems. And anytime you have to come back and do something where there's already uh, a stent in place, uh, veins have been manipulated, it's much harder. For those cases, inflow almost indefinite definitely is a disease whether it was before or not it is now and then you have to fight your way through these occluded stents and you generally have to deal with stents that are that have less luminal caliber than you would like so once they're full of chronic clot you can generally only put a smaller stent inside of them although there are newer devices and technologies that are helping you with that you're sort of constrained to what, what's there and so you have to make the best of a somewhat bad situation for, for the patient first, and then you as the person trying to help them.
1: Now, just to clarify for our audience, we're talking about stents that have been down for a long time, right? These aren't people who uh, have thrombosed within the past week.
0: Absolutely. So I would, I would say that this applies only to chronic occlusions. And by definition, I guess that's somewhere in the three-month and longer re- region. In the acute and subacute phase, of course, you'd love to be able to thrombolyce or thrombectomize um, and get them back without adding layers of stents, getting back and then figuring out why they went down. Um, again, could be one of the top three factors. But yes, chronic occlusions that have been down for a long time with chronic thrombus that has sort of created its own network within the stent or around the stent.
1: Man, yeah, those are those are really tough scenarios. Do you find that the length of occlusion that you have to cross in those situations is much longer than in your flavor number one, for example, cases?
0: Yes. Um, usually when there's a patient with a, a stent already in place, it's, you really have to cross the entire stent. Although I would say in the middle of the stent, the thrombus, which we frequently biopsy, is a little bit mushier with the ends, just like in a patient with a fistula that's clotted off, has this chronic uh, plaque. So that is really hard to get through. It's a, like a, a very f- a fibrinous plug that sometimes kinks or bends a needle, wires don't want to go through, and, and you have to work your way through. I will find that more and more these days, we have patients who've had stents for in for longer and longer, and that chronic thrombus calcifies with dystrophic calcification, which makes it additionally harder because now you have to sort of plow through those. But yes, I frequently see the Matherner stent that goes down to the common femoral vein. So it's somewhere in the 16 or 15, 20 centimeter length that you have to burrow your way through.
1: This is an aside, but I'm actually recording an episode about RF recan tomorrow. So fun fact, do you ever use re-entry devices like arterial reentry devices when you're trying to cross these really long occlusions?
0: I, I think in the venous world, I have tried... Almost everything, at least once. I think something like a Pioneer device or an Outback, the needle is too soft. It gets kinked. It might break. It doesn't really get through them. Although we've done it, again, on like sort of a subacute type of patient. In the chronic ones, I think that what we find is that the needles are just not robust enough. They're not directional enough. And so I generally don't. Funny that you mentioned radiofrequency wire. I do use that as a staple and have that ready in patients who have chronic occlusions with stents in. I think there are people who have, written, who have done great work in RF wire recanalization for native veins. That is something that I'm afraid of and choose not to do. I, I feel that there's more control with a needle, for me at least, but radiofrequency wire is very useful. And we actually wrote a series of that maybe seven years ago um, of those in chronically occluded stents. And I'm finding more and more I've used laser in these patients as well. It is something that I saw one of my mentors, colleagues, Dr. Engel do. And it worked and I thought it was pretty cool. And I've done it in a few patients as well.
1: Of course, Dr. Engel did that. <laughs> of
0: course, he tried that. Um, I think I tried to get him to use RF wire and he said, let's try this laser and it worked pretty well.
1: Oh man, that's really neat. That's a, such a cool thing. Okay. Any other escalation strategies you use for the chronically occluded stents?
0: You know, there, we have been looking for the, the right devices and the right techniques and the right tips in order to debulk chronic stents. Because when you have this chronic thrombus, it just forms this brick wall. And when you do get through the brick wall, you can't really break down all the bricks like you can in an acute DVT. And so we have found that I've tried lithotripsy, all the different thrombectomy devices. They all do just a little bit, but not really. And you are left with a lot less room to work. Even if you balloon a 16 millimeter stent, for example, that has a lot of chronic, full of chronic thrombus, you balloon it up to 14 there's still, or 16, there's still a lot of chronic thrombus that is circumferential within the stent. And you can only usually get away with putting like a 12 millimeter stent within it, or at least that gets to 12. And so you're limiting your ability to get good uh, laminar flow through that. And so what I, we've recently found are there are different devices, um, thrombectomy devices that are out coming out into the market. One of them is the Anari RevCore device. It's like, it's truly a coring element and it's made to be used within stents. I've had the pleasure of doing a few cases with that device, and I found that it almost cleared the entirety of the chronic thrombus. That's really cool. I was really shocked um, and really impressed. I think we still have to reline those stents because there's still a layer, but you're able to put in a 14 or 16 millimeter stent in to chronic and subacute thrombus respectively. So there's those types of devices. Some of the thrombectomy devices are coming, adding on adjunctive devices that go through them that help get rid of more chronic clot. And I'm really excited to see where the field goes because all the industry partners are really excited about this as well. So they're all coming up with a new innovative way.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Like I said, I think it's going to be a different world if we recorded this podcast five years from now.
0: Absolutely. Or five years ago.
1: or yeah, exactly. Or even five years ago. After the procedure, what kind of anticoagulation regimen do you usually put folks on?
0: Yeah. So I think it's really important as interventional radiologists who are doing these interventions to know about the anticoagulants and the antiplatelet agents. So as a whole, antithrombotic therapies are really, I think, key for long-term patency of venous stents. And that's been shown in, in a lot of the literature. What hasn't been shown is what's the perfect combo. And I still, I know some of my research is focused on this and there's a lot of other people looking into this and we still don't know what the special sauce is. I think the first answer though, is the one thing that we do know is uh, inoxaparin is the special sauce for immediate post-procedural thrombosis and reduction of inflammation so every patient that we do a iliocable reconstruction on a pop or a venous stenting that is chronic not acute or non-thrombotic we place them on lovinox i generally do one milligram per kilogram twice daily and i do it for two to four weeks now i know patients don't love that taking an injection twice daily but the data that we do have that is randomized and that is looked at very carefully shows that the reduction of post-thrombotic syndrome improves significantly after greater than 10 days of Lovenox. So I do that on every patient. They all get Lovenox twice daily at one mg per kg. And then we change them to a DOAC after that point. And that DOAC in general, I like to use drugs that have, that have twice daily dosing because I feel that you have no peaks and valleys, but more of a steady state that's just my opinion. There's limited data to, to, to support that. And then I put patients when they get fresh stents on Plavix or Clopidogrel or one of the other medications uh, that are antiplatelet agents. And I generally do that until I see them back at their second follow-up, which is usually at around three to six months. And I, I think that that has been shown in some data that there is reduced rethrombosis in these patients, again, with uh, an anticoagulant and an antiplatelet agent on, on board do
1: you do concurrent aspirin or just monotherapy with a DOAC?
0: That's a great question. The dual antiplatelet therapy with an anticoagulant is frequently referred to as triple therapy. And we I really do that in patients who I ha, feel have the really compromised inflow. Even if I spend all this time in the world trying to improve their inflow, those are patients that I consider putting them on triple therapy. However, that comes with an increased bleeding risk. And so if I have a patient in whom I did sharp reconstruction and maybe had to poke a few more times, I definitely don't start it day off procedure. I frequently get asked by my uh, trainees, hey, Dr. Kravitz, do you want to give a loading dose of Flavix tonight? And I, my answer is always no. Um, I don't give loading doses because uh, of the large dose of, of an antaclalit agent because it's got a longer half-life. It's going to be in the system for longer. And if they do have a bleeding complication, I can get it under control like I can with stopping Lovinox or Hepburn or something like that. When patients uh, do have bleeding complications, the antiplatelet agent is the first thing I stop because, again, the Plavix, as I tell patients, Plavix or clopidogrel makes your blood less sticky and anticoagulants make your blood flow faster. And so that's kind of how I explain it. And I think that I would rather have it flow better with the anticoagulant on board than just the the antiplatelet.
1: That's it. I love that little analogy. That's adorable. It makes your blood less sticky. Definitely going to steal that.
0: <laughs> no no worries you can still any anything in all is yours <laughs> if I may just a couple other points um we know that inflammation plays a large role, especially in rethrombosis, especially in patients who are having repeat interventions these patients with clotting disorders or patients who have all open ulcers they have really high inflammatory markers, patients with cancer and so if you're doing these interventions, you want to reduce their inflammation in another way as well and anoxaparin or lovenox has anti-inflammatory properties. So if I had a patient who, who would tell me, doc, I'll take whatever you tell me to take for the rest of my life, I would actually pick an anoxaparin. Really? Um, but most patients don't want to do that. And I know that I probably wouldn't want to, but I do consider other things that reduce inflammation. And, and there's recent studies to show that statin therapy in patients with venous disease has been beneficial. And there's RCT is ongoing now too. So I actually start my patients on a low dose statin after checking their labs and making sure that they have elevated inflammatory markers. I start them on statin therapy and then also consider venoactive substances like diosmin or hesperidin. So I get ready to throw the kitchen sink at patients, especially the flavor number three, the redos, which are occluded everywhere. I really want to do the best to keep them open as long as possible while decreasing their bleeding risk.
1: That's a really great point. That's like like you said, throwing the kitchen sink at them because they got to stay open. You mentioned your follow-up in clinic up to six months. Do you see them annually after that?
0: You know, I see them usually immediately post-procedure, which immediately I consider within, I tell everyone, to within two to four weeks. And that's usually when some of their discomfort may get a little bit better. We figured out sort of anticoagulation. And as I mentioned, I usually change them at that point. So I see them in clinic and then I change them to a DOAC. After that, In patients that are complete occlusions that I've had to do, that have flavor number two or three rather, that have inflow problems and prior stents, I generally see them back a little bit sooner. So three months is when I see them. I repeat their Volalta score and I get an ultrasound. And then at six months is where I tell them that they've sort of hit their stride. If they've done all the things that they are doing, Mm -hmm. wearing compression therapy, exercising as much as possible, hopefully having quit smoking if they were smoking, they're taking their anticoagulation, antiplatelet agents. Then at six months is when I decide whether they're going to be somebody who's going to probably do very well and require re-intervention or if they're going to. If patients are doing clinically very, very well, I don't actually get any other imaging until six months uh, later, where we would actually do a venogram, a catheter-based venogram is what we do at our institution, or a CT scan if the patient really doesn't want that. And I think we're an outlier in that we do catheter-based venograms frequently. On these patients because i think we're trying to get ahead of forming instant stenosis so that we can treat it accordingly and i think that would require that would entail changing their anticoagulation around reducing their inflammatory markers and keeping their stents open in any way we can so that's sort of how we we go so two weeks two to four weeks three months six months 12 months and if they're doing great then a year later and if they have an issue um, and they require re-intervention i usually start the clock over
1: so they get annual venograms.
0: Annual venograms for the first 2 years and then after we just move to CT. That's CT wow, yeah. and ultrasound.
1: How often do you catch a, an early rethrombosis or issue with the stent on your annual on your venograms?
0: We've actually frequently see a significant instant stenosis. Um, there are patients that we've done a venogram at 3 months as well, but those are usually clinically symptomatic. And we actually see that in the first three months or so, they develop as much instant stenosis as they're going to, except for in the patients with poor inflow. They just sort of start going downhill if they've already done that three months, at which point would trigger me to say I haven't optimized that inflow. And so given our patient population is more of flavor two and three, so the chronic uh, occlusions with inflow problems and the reduced stents, I end up favoring kind of an earlier clinical assessment and an imaging assessment as needed.
1: Really important stuff. Okay, well, any other tips you'd like to share for people who want to learn more about this disease or want to start incorporating this into their practice?
0: Absolutely. I I think that it's a really exciting time for chronic venous disease. I think learning the language of patient assessment, learning different tips and tricks with the different recanalization devices is really important. Knowing proper follow-up with anticoagulation regimens, and uh, markers for clinical failure are important. But I would say the most important thing is knowing your limits. I know that we all think that these are veins, but bad things can happen. I know they're not arteries, but they require a little bit of more TLC, tender loving care, in case anyone doesn't remember that. <laughs> but I, I do think that they do require more hands-on approach to patient management. And I think that when you're starting off and doing some of these cases, they're really exciting to get good flow. At the end of the case, and opening up patients' veins, that really changed their lives. I just say start start with something you feel comfortable with. Start with the shorter occlusions that probably can get a uh, glide wire or guide wire through and balloon and stent appropriately. And if you find something that you come across that may be a little bit more challenging, it's okay to get a phone a friend. It's, it's great to call one of your attendings. It's great to cut one of your partner's opinions at any point. Because once you go down that road of placing stents in a patient, you can't take it back and it becomes much harder. And the final thing I would say is using intravascular ultrasound is really, really important and helpful. It helps uh, get away from potential complications, so finding near misses. And it also helps you assess inflow, which is probably one of the most important things. Awesome.
1: Well, this has been a really great discussion. I learned quite a bit. Thanks for letting me pick your brain. And I'm not exaggerating, Minaj, when I say that you are like one of the top 10 smartest people I know. You are just just a brilliant, amazing person. And I'm so thankful that I know you.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you, Ali. It's really been an honor. And, you know, this is all due to mentors and mentees, people we've worked with and on our teams. that uh, It's really been beneficial to help these patients.
1: Oh, did you want to give a shout out to somebody special
0: I totally have to give a shout out, and thank you for that. <laughs> um, my son, uh, Musa, has a YouTube channel where he gave a shout out to Backtable Podcasts, oh, okay. one of his YouTube channels, <laughs> so uh, his uh, po- his YouTube channel is not M U X A, so N-O-T-M-U-X-A on YouTube, um, and he's got a video talking about interventional radiology and the shout out to Backtable, so thanks, Musa. Oh. And thanks, Allie. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza,
1: and Ali Behetti.
0: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Subli. Administrative support provided by Jim lui Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana.
1: Thanks again for listening.